Good to greet you on this rainy Sunday morning and want to welcome all the folks joining us online. Whether you've logged in to live.mpcc.info or you're watching us on Facebook Live, we're glad to have you as a part of our service today. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, take it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the 21st chapter. We're in Matthew chapter 21 as we continue our verse-by-verse journey through this Gospel called Let's Talk About Jesus. While you're turning there, let me just say it's already been an incredible weekend here at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. We had an incredible day yesterday as we packed 401,112 meals for Cuba. So let's celebrate that today. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who participated in that. It was a great, great experience. I I was in the first session and packed meals with my entire home group and then my daughter-in-law and My two oldest grandkids were also at the table, and that was a a real thrill. Now, we had some additional meals that had already been packed at the impact center on the back of the property there. We had three pallets filled with meals. And so all together, we'll be sending 405,648 meals to Cuba. And listen, this was our fifth year to do this meal packing event. And at some point through the second session, the second of three sessions yesterday, we hit the milestone of packing our one millionth meal. How about that? That's something to celebrate as well as a church. We've celebrated uh, packing a million meals. Now, these are going, as I mentioned, to Cuba, to our mission partner there. And we are so blessed this morning to have Pastor Pachi and his wife, Marilyn, with us from Cuba. Would you stand and let's give them a really warm, Mount Pleasant welcome. Come on. Woo! Come on. Who can whistle? All right. All right. All right. Why don't you ever do that while I'm preaching? Uh-huh. Anyway, we're thrilled to have them with us. Uh, Pastor Pachi uh, was gracious enough to let me preach at his church uh, in Cuba last January. And I tell you, friends, that was one of the great experiences of my life, preaching in Cuba. And so we're thankful for New Pine Seminary. We're thankful for the church in Cuba and the many churches there because there are, pa- Pastor Pachi is leading a church planting network across Cuba and lots and lots of believers there. So we're really grateful for that. Uh, after the service is over today, and I know that you'll be busy trying to get to where you need to go, but Pastor Pachi and Marilyn will be out standing by our mission wall right around the corner. And I'd love it if you'd stop by there and just give them a warm greeting. Maybe if you're uh, going to be a part of that mission trip that's going to Cuba in November, maybe you could stop by and uh, say your hellos. But let's take advantage of the opportunity of having them here and what we did yesterday to pray and ask God's blessing on all of this, okay? Father, thank you so much for a chance uh, to worship you today and to praise you today. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that old rugged cross that makes the difference for us when it comes to the forgiveness of sin (coughs) and the opportunity for salvation. Right now, we want to pray your blessing on these 400,000 plus meals that are going to Cuba. I was so uh, moved yesterday when at the beginning of each uh, training session, Pastor Pachi shared about the difference these meals that we've sent the last couple of years had made for the people there in Cuba. And I pray that you would use those uh, to bless people's lives physically, but also to open the door to many, many spiritual conversations. I pray your blessing on Pastor Pachi and Marilyn, their entire family and their team, the New Pine Seminary, all those involved in church planning. We pray for great, great, great success in their work. Thank you for the honor of having them in our services this weekend. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You probably heard the story about the man who applied for a job feeding animals at the zoo. When he got there, he was told, we've already filled that position, but we have another opening that you might be interested in. Yesterday, sadly, our gorilla died. 
And if we give you a gorilla suit, would you be willing to put it on and sit in his cage and imitate him for the next few weeks? The man was so desperate for money that he said yes. And he was great at it. He put the suit on and it was just like he was transformed. He would beat his chest. He would bellow. He would shake the bars of the cage. And the people who came to the zoo loved watching him. Well, one day he got a little carried away. He was swinging on a, on a trapeze that they had rigged in the gorilla cage and lost his grip and somehow flung himself into the lion's cage. And when he landed in the lion's cage, then the lion let out this ferocious roar and he panicked and he began to back up, but the lion began to approach him. And finally, in desperation, he was crying out at the top of his lungs, help, help, help. And the lion got closer and opened his mouth again. But this time, instead of roaring, he said, shut up, stupid, or we're both going to lose our jobs. (laughs) Sometimes things aren't always as they seem, right? Everyone say, right. They're not always what they seem. We read about that in the Bible. The Bible has a word for that. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. In the original language of the New Testament, it's the Greek word hypocrisis, and literally translated means the acting of a stage player. It's someone who is pretending to be something or someone that they aren't. And Jesus encountered a lot of hypocrisy, uh, especially among the religious leaders during his earthly life, and he never hesitated to speak out against it. In fact, we're in Matthew chapter 21, and In just a few weeks, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23, which is the chapter where Jesus really addresses the religious leaders and oftentimes uh, with very descriptive language. It's not, it's not, they're not being addressed in a good way. Right off the, right at the very beginning in Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 and 3, this is what Jesus says. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And when Jesus said of these men that they do not practice what they preach, he's calling them hypocrites. Now, I don't think anybody sets out to be a hypocrite, but what happens over time is our lives get so full of other things that we allow ourselves to just fall into the practice of focusing more on the external appearance of being religious instead of the internal pursuit of a genuinely righteous life. And that's what we're going to talk about for a little while this morning. So if you've got your Bibles open there to Matthew chapter 21 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 21 verses 18 through 27. It's a little bit of a different text, but you follow along. Early in the morning as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, He went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer." And Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always, always 
always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's try to make sense of this text this morning. The the title of the message is The Danger of Hypocrisy. And what I see in these verses is Jesus talking about three things, three things related to the danger of hypocrisy. If you'd like to take notes, write down next to number one. The first one is profession without proof. Profession without proof. And for that, we're going to look at the story of Jesus cursing this fig tree. To understand this part of the text, you have to know a little bit a little bit about fig trees. I don't know anything about fig trees, so here's what I discovered in my study. In Jesus' day, fig trees bore fruit in Israel twice each year. They bore fruit twice each year. This would happen primarily around June and again around September. But, and this is an important thing that we need to understand about this story. A fig tree almost always produced fruit before it sprouted leaves. It almost always produced fruit before it sprouted leaves. And so when Jesus found nothing on the tree except leaves, he was disappointed because the tree should have already produced fruit. A tree covered in leaves, a fig tree covered in leaves should have already produced fruit. Now, the story can seem a little bit confusing at first because this happened at the time of the Passover, which would have been sometime in April. Remember I said the fig tree would bear fruit sometime around June and sometime around September. And so when Jesus curses the tree for not having fruit, it appears that he's blaming the tree for not doing what it's unable to do. So how do we understand that? Well, let's just keep it as simple as possible. I don't think it's complicated, friends. Let's just understand it like this. What Jesus did when he cursed the fig tree was symbolic. Everyone say symbolic. Symbolic. Because the leaves on the tree advertised that there were figs there as well, but it was a false advertisement. So Jesus didn't curse the fig tree because it wasn't bearing fruit. He cursed the fig tree because it was advertising the promise of fruit, but delivering none. And so you know what this is, really? I mean, we can understand it like this. This is a real-life parable. Jesus taught in parables. It was his probably most favorite way to teach. The word parable from the Greek word parabole, which means the placing of one thing by the side of another thing. And so Jesus routinely would teach spiritual truths to the people following him by comparing a spiritual truth to something from their everyday life that they would understand, to take a spiritual truth and place it beside something that happened every day in their lives that they would understand. And what this is is a real-life parable. Jesus is sharing a parable, but the disciples, instead of just listening to it, they're, they're a part of it. They're watching it unfold right in front of their eyes. He's comparing a fig tree in full bloom that advertises the promise of fruit but produces none, something the disciples would have been very familiar with, to people who make a show of being religious when in fact they're spiritually barren. And when he curses the fig tree, he he shows us what he thinks about both things. A fig tree that looks like it has figs but has none, a person that looks religious but really bears no spiritual fruit. Here's what we need to understand. Write this down somewhere in your notes. In the Bible, fruit is always the indicator of salvation. Fruit is always the indicator of salvation. Another way to say it would be like this. Fruit is always the indicator of a genuinely transformed life. Bearing fruit, spiritual fruit, is always the indicator of a genuinely transformed life. And this isn't something that should surprise us because Jesus, as we've worked our way verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew so far, we started this all the way back in November of 2016. Jesus has already taught us this truth. 
I think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. That was a long time ago from where we are now in Matthew 21. But in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And then he says this, by their, say it with me, fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he says it again, thus by their fruit. Because remember, fruit is always the indicator of a genuinely transformed life. By their fruit, you will recognize them. That's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. We went a little bit further in our verse-by-verse journey through Matthew to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus shares a series of parables, parabole, the placing of one thing beside another thing. And of all the parables that he tells, the most familiar one to most people is the very first one he tells. It's the parable of the sower. That's what we call it. And he tells a story about a man who goes out to sow seed one day. And he says, the seed falls on four different kinds of soil. The first batch of seed fell on the rocky path. The second path, or or just on the hard path, the second batch fell on the rocky places where there wasn't much soil. The third batch of seed fell among the thorns. The fourth batch of seed fell on what he called the good soil. And he said the seed that fell on the good soil produced a crop 160 or 30 times what what had been sown. A little bit later, Jesus explains the meaning of the parables. And he says the seed represents the Word of God. The paths, or the ground rather, represents the human heart. And in Matthew 13, 23, he says, but the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it, receives it in his heart. And he said, he produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what has been sown, what was sown. He bears fruit. Fruit is always the indicator of a genuinely transformed life. Now, someone might say, okay, pastor, But let's get more specific. What are you talking about specifically? What are examples of this kind of fruit that you're talking about? Well, write this down somewhere in your notes. Fruit is the direct result of whatever controls our hearts. Fruit is the direct result of whatever controls our hearts. And so you've got the fruit of a life that's surrendered to Christ in your life, or you've got the fruit of a life that's surrendered to something or to someone else. Uh, Think of it like this. When Christ controls your heart, because I told you fruit is the direct result of whatever controls your heart. When Christ controls your heart, when you have surrendered, when you have committed your life to Christ, when you live first and foremost to please Him, that's the priority of your life. The natural result is your choices in your life will reflect that commitment, and that'll be the fruit that you bear. I'm talking about your choices with regard to your attitude. I'm talking about your choices with regard to your behavior, how you respond to the different realities of life. I'm talking about your choices with regard to the things that you're committed to in this life. I'm talking about your choices with regard to how you use the resources God has entrusted to you from time to talent to influence to financial resources. 
every single thing that you can think of. And that is the fruit, that is the, that is the fruit of a life, of a heart that is surrendered to and controlled by Jesus. And so, the question that we have to ask ourselves when we think about what kind of fruit we might be bearing in our lives is just this, and all of us should probably write this question down in our notes and at some point really give it some serious thought. The question is, who or what controls your heart? Who or what controls your heart? I mean, honestly. We can't give Sunday school answers here because you know why? Jesus sees right through that. We can't give Sunday school answers. Who or what controls your heart? And we could say Jesus, but then we'd have to do this. We'd have to say, well, if my life, if I say, well, Jesus does, and then I have to understand that if my life was put under a microscope where everything about my life was revealed, I mean, uh, people looked at my calendar, people looked at my checkbook, people looked at my investment accounts, people looked at, you know, the way that I spent my time, would my answer match up to the reality of the way I live my life? Who or what controls my heart? Who or what has my first affection? What do I choose first over and ahead of everything else? Because to say it's Christ, but then to live a life that doesn't measure up to that, that's hypocrisy. That's to be a tree that bears leaves, but no fruit. Look at these words on the screen from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13, because they give us a pretty strong description of this hypocrisy. And that's such a strong word, I know, but that's what we're talking about today. The prophet says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Who or what controls your heart? That's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. The second danger that I see in the text here related to hypocrisy is prayer without power. Write that down next to number two. Prayer without power. And we see that as Jesus continues on after the tree is cursed and then begins to wither. Now, everybody look up here for a minute. Remember I told you last week that one of the kind of unique things about Matthew's gospel, I don't know if unique is the right word, but one of the nuances of Matthew's gospel is that for some reason he at different times chooses to condense the events of Jesus' last week and to make it look like they happened one right after the other at the same time. And this, we see that again in this story. If you look at this story at from the perspective of all of the Gospels, you see this didn't, this didn't, wasn't something that happened immediately. I, I'm sure that that fig tree began to die as soon as Jesus spoke those words. But in Mark's Gospel, for example, it says that it wasn't until the next day where the disciples saw the tree again and noticed that it had withered and died. Now, I don't know why. When you get to heaven, you can chase Matthew down. You can ask him why, if that really bothers you. I don't know why. But that's the story there, okay? But in Matthew's Gospel, he, he shows it like it... Bam, just like that. And what he says in verse 20 is when the disciples saw this, they were amazed, talking about the fact that Jesus cursed the tree and immediately the tree withered. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they ask? And Jesus launches into this lesson about prayer and faith. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what it was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. And then verse 22 says, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What a great verse. Somebody say amen to that. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for 
in prayer. Now, first of all, I don't, I think Jesus is using hyperbole here, just like he does in different places in the scripture. He's not, he's, he's exaggerating to make a point. You don't find anywhere in the Bible where somebody is commanded to do something like uprooting a mountain and throwing it into the sea. Uh, I read this past week that in Jewish literature, there was a term that they used to use for powerful spiritual leaders who could remove great obstacles and solve great problems. They would call them the rooter up of mountains, the rooter up of mountains. And so I think Jesus was probably using language that the disciples were familiar with to make a strong point. It was a metaphor for a spiritual leader who could solve great problems and remove great obstacles. Jesus is basically telling these disciples, listen, you've got the same power available to you that you're amazed at with regard to me. But there are a couple of things that we need to understand about this. We've talked about this already at different places in our journey through Matthew, so I'm not going to go in great detail here. Uh, we, but there are a couple of things we need to talk about with regard to this kind of faith that Jesus is talking about as it relates to prayer. So write these two things down somewhere in your notes. First, the kind of faith Jesus is talking about is not just faith for the sake of faith. That might sound odd, but bear with me. It's not just faith for the sake of faith. Here's what I mean by that. I have, and maybe you've had this experience as well, I've had the experience of talking to Christians about faith, and it's clear to me that they have faith in their ability to have faith. Okay, let me, let me try to illustrate that. Let's say that you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with some life-threatening disease, or someone that you really love and care about is diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, and uh, you turn, you know, you pray for healing and for all of that to, to go away, and, and you have faith, but if you really examine that faith, it's, it's, it's more faith in having faith than anything else. If I have enough faith, if I believe hard enough in this, this picture of healing, then it'll happen, and oftentimes if it doesn't happen, then you're disappointed. You think, well, I didn't have enough faith. It's easy to do that. It's easy to have faith in your ability to have faith. If I can believe, if I can just believe, if I just have enough faith. But what we're talking about here is having faith in God, right? Sounds like it would be a no-brainer, but sometimes it's easy to get that confused. We're, having, we're talking about having faith in the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, almighty, supernatural creator and sustainer of the universe, God, the way he's revealed to us in the Scripture. We're not talking about having faith just for the sake of faith, we're talking about faith in God. And sometimes, I know it sounds odd, but I've had this experience. There's a difference between those two things. The second thing I want you to write down is that we, when we think about faith as it relates to prayer, we have to use all the Bible says about prayer to really understand prayer. Because there are bold promises in the Scriptures related to prayer. We just read one. Again, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, 1 and verse 22, Jesus says, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I love that verse. I love those words. I love that promise. But we can't take those kinds of verses and just view them as some kind of a spiritual blank check for everything we want, whatever it might be. We have to understand everything the Bible has to say about prayer. Up in my office uh, on the credenza of my desk is where I put my laptop and where I where I do all my study, I have a piece of yellow paper taped down on my credenza next to my computer, 
and it has five things written down on it. And I, I look at these five things every time I sit down and I start to study the Bible and write a sermon. The first thing that's written there is when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. That's my rule for interpretation, my fundamental rule for interpretation, because oftentimes, friends, what that means is the Bible just means exactly what it says, right? The second thing written down is the text of Scripture can never mean to, some, can never mean to us what it, doesn't, what it didn't mean, rather, to the original reader. The text of Scripture can never mean to us what it didn't mean to the original reader. It's easy to take the Bible out of context. I can't, you can't just open up the Bible and read something and think, oh, I think this is what it means for me. What it means for you is what it meant for the original reader. We have to remember context when we study the Bible. The third thing I have written down, and this is what I think about, want you to think about with me for a moment, is this. We interpret the Bible with the Bible. We have to use the entire Bible to understand the specific parts of the Bible that we might be looking at in the moment. The fourth thing I've got written down is ask questions. When you read your Bible for the purpose of study, you read a passage of Scripture, you should ask questions. Who's writing? Who's being written to? Is there some theme here? Is someone being told something to do or not to do? You just ask questions. That helps us understand. The fifth thing I've got written down is the meaning of words matters. The meaning of words matters. That's why we often talk about what a word means in the original language. But number three is we interpret the Bible with the Bible. And the Bible has a lot to say about prayer. We love the words that we read in Matthew 21, verse 22, but the Bible has so much more to say about prayer than just that one verse. And we have to understand all that the Bible says about prayer to really understand how to pray. Let me give you an example. Look at these words on the screen from 1 John 5, 14. This time, John is writing, and he says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Another bold promise about prayer. But he includes a little bit of a different nuance than Jesus did in Matthew 21, 22. Not that one was right and the other was wrong. He just gives us more instruction about prayer. And he adds this phrase, that if we ask anything, and here's the key, according to his what? Will. If we ask anything according to his will. You can't just pick and choose what verses from the Bible you're going to embrace. You can't just choose a verse that's, that's a bold promise about prayer and ignore the fact that in other places of the Bible, because remember, we interpret the Bible with the Bible, we're told that we need to pray according to God's will. That means we can't just ask for selfish things. That means sometimes we don't understand what God might be doing in the moment, what his ultimate plan or purpose is. There's other places in the Bible we're told that we need to make sure that we pray in Jesus' name. What's that mean? Does that mean we just always have to say the words in Jesus' name before we say amen? Some people think that. I had a man in my church come up to me all upset one Sunday morning uh, in Oklahoma because a man had prayed that morning on the platform. I think he maybe prayed the communion prayer, and he didn't say in Jesus' name at the end of his prayer. He just said amen. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? He just said Amen. But when the Bible talks about praying in Jesus' name, it's talking about praying consistently with who Jesus is. I love to pray in Jesus' name, don't you? The Bible says that the name of Jesus is the most powerful name under heaven and on earth. There's power in Jesus' name. But there's more to it than just saying in Jesus' name, amen. We have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And we can't just take one verse of Scripture and ignore all the rest of it with regard to prayer and claim it and then get upset when our prayers aren't answered. Now, having said that, let me get back to the overall theme of this message, which is the danger of hypocrisy. Here's how this relates. 
We can sometimes be guilty of hypocrisy when it comes to prayer and to faith because it's hypocritical to say, I believe in prayer and then not have the faith to pray. It's hypocritical to say, I believe that God loves me and wants the best for my life, but not have the faith to ask for God's best when you pray. It's hypocritical to say that God, that you believe that God has the desire to accomplish something in your life and the power to accomplish whatever it might be, and then not have the faith to ask him to accomplish it. We can sometimes be guilty of hypocrisy when we pray. And so as Jesus talks to the disciples and to us about prayer, he challenges us to pray bigger and bolder prayers and to believe that those prayers will be answered. That's why we go back to what he says again in Matthew 21, 22, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. But sometimes we're afraid to believe, honestly. And so what do we do? We pray small prayers that aren't pointed and aren't specific and don't reflect anything positive about the power of God. So let me give you a challenge this morning. Let's end this point with a challenge, and I got to do this quickly. Here's the challenge related to, to this point about prayer. I'm challenging everyone to embrace a prayer project that is so big that it can only succeed by the power of God. There's nothing you can do to make it happen. It can only succeed by the power of God. I want you to think about something that you believe 100% is consistent with the will of God, something you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wants to accomplish in your life, in the life of someone you love, in your church, in the world, whatever. I'm talking about eternal things. I'm not talking about uh, material acquisitions or anything that's related to this temporal, sinful, fallen world that we live in. I'm talking about things that have eternal significance. I'm talking about victory over sin. I'm talking about a restored relationship. I'm talking about effective ministry. I'm talking about the salvation of someone that you know and you love who's a long way from God. Maybe it's a prayer for your one life, something you know God wants to accomplish identify it and then begin to pray for it in a big, bold way with absolute faith, not faith in your ability to have faith, but faith in God's power and pray persistently because persistent prayer and praying in faith are inseparably linked. If you want to face the danger of slipping into hypocrisy when it comes to your prayer life, then you start praying in faith for something like you've never prayed before. Right down next to number three, the third danger. I see in the text associated hypocrisy, write down the words inquiry without integrity. Inquiry without integrity. And this takes us to the last part of the text and this encounter Jesus had with the religious leaders. I don't have time for a detailed explanation. But the religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask him this question, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And instead of giving them an answer, Jesus replies with a question of his own. He says, I will ask you a question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Now, everybody look up here. Jesus was not dodging the question, okay? You know, Jesus knows exactly what's happening. How many of you know Jesus knows exactly what's happening all the time? And he's seen these guys have been asking him questions to try to trap him over and over and over again. And no matter how many times they failed, no matter how many times he makes them look foolish, they're so dull, so stupid that they keep trying. And Jesus reverses things on them and asks them his own question. He, he wasn't afraid to answer the question. He, Jesus made it clear throughout his entire ministry 
uh, about um, under whose authority he was acting. Look at these verses, this verse from John chapter 5 and verse 19. Jesus made this clear. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus had made it clear whose authority he was working under. And so he asked them his own question. And Look at their response in the latter part of verse 25 and verse 26. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? Read between the lines. We're going to look bad if we give that answer. But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people for all they hold, for, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Read between the lines. We don't want to lose our position in the eyes of the people. So let me ask you a question. Did they want to know the truth? Was there integrity behind their inquiry about Jesus and under whose authority he was operating? No. That's hypocrisy, friends. So they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, I love Jesus' response. He basically was like, well, then I'm not going to tell you either. I'm done. Listen, you ever had an argument with somebody and They've been proven wrong but refused to admit it. Did that happen on the way to church this morning, baby? <laughs> Isn't that frustrating? And it's clear that they're, that right or wrong related to whatever the issue is is not something that ever entered into their thinking. They're just interested in winning the argument. We've got to be on guard against this kind of arrogance because when we close our eyes to the truth and just want to believe what we want to believe, we're courting hypocrisy. We need to remain teachable and keep our hearts open to the truth. You know what? I don't believe the exact same way today that I believed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and further back with regard to certain things about the Bible and the Christian life. I'm sure that there are some areas in my life where I'm closed off still and have some stubbornness about me, but we've got to remain open and teachable. Understanding the truth has got to be our first priority or else we're courting with hypocrisy because there's no integrity behind our reading and studying of the Bible. So let's just ask ourselves some questions. We'll close. Is there any hip hypocrisy in our lives? Any in yours? I'm asking myself, is there any hypocrisy in my life? Am I bearing the kind of fruit that demonstrates the reality of my faith or do I fall into the trap sometimes of just going through the motions of looking religious? Am I praying with power because I have a genuine faith in an almighty God? Are my prayers consistent with his will? Am I interested in the truth or am I interested in preserving my opinions or what I've always been taught? Maybe the most important question is this. Who or what controls my heart? What do I give my first affection to? What's my first choice in life? Who or what controls my heart? These are questions that help guard us against the danger of hypocrisy.